Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. I'm Caleb Meyer. All right, Caleb, give me the end of this sentence. I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. Given how you said the rest of that, you're quoting Heath Ledger's Joker in the opening bank robbery scene in The Dark Knight. And the first time in the movie we see his face. He wears a mask throughout the beginning of the film, and as he takes the mask off, lording over the bank manager he's just shot, he delivers that line. Now what if I told you, you have a connection to the Joker's first appearance? Not in The Dark Knight, but in the Joker's first appearance in comics all the way back in Batman number one. I'm intrigued. Now quick pause. Bob Kane gets... All of the credit most of the time, but Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson also played a huge part in the Joker as we know him today. He's one of the most recognizable characters of all time in any medium. The design of green hair, pale white face, bright red around the sinister, grinning smile, and purple suit have remained through basically every reinterpretation of the character with only a few variations. Well, why mess with a good thing? So if we go back to Batman number one, and I have a reprint of it, a Batman anthology book from the 30s to the 70s, we find a crazy connection in the opening pages. So there's an opening, I don't think splash page is the right term, but the Joker's taking up most of it. He's holding three playing cards. One is a classic Joker image that carries on through other interpretations of the character, and then cards that have Batman and Robin on them. And we start with an elderly couple, and the text just says, it is night, and most homes people listen to the radios. And... (laughs) We just get a thought bubble that says, my, isn't it peaceful sitting at home like this? And then there's strange noises coming from the radio. And the old man sitting reading his newspaper just goes, nothing like it. Hmm, static. And then the box above says, suddenly the music is cut off. A voice, a toneless voice drones. Tonight at precisely 12 o'clock midnight, I will kill Henry Claridge and steal the Claridge diamond. Do not try to stop me. The Joker has spoken. And then we go to the second page and says, then once again, music. And his wife just goes, Henry, did you hear? Henry, Cl- they're both named Henry. <laughs> Henry Claridge, the millionaire, to be killed, the famous diamond stolen. And then her husband just goes, huh, it's just a gag, like that fellow who scared everybody with a story about Mars the last time. Huh, pay no attention to it, dear. And you have a connection to that that uh, I think would now be a good time to share. I couldn't believe it when I went back and saw that. Is that what I think it is? That is... A reference to the War of the Worlds panic broadcast from Orson <laughs> Welles that caused a massive panic not even a decade before Batman number one was released. The event was still on the minds of the American public. And for background here, the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne did the panic broadcast as a play a while back. You performed the part of Orson Welles for a play that is referenced in Batman number one. There's your connection. That's awesome. We now know that in the early years of the 20th century, this world
Welcome back to Storytelling Breakdown. As you probably guessed, this episode is going to be Joker-centric. What doesn't kill you doesn't just make you stronger or stranger. It can also lead to 80 years of cultural relevance. This podcast is a project Ben and I have been developing over the course of the last year or so. And before we get back to all things Joker, we wanted to give you a little background on why Storytelling Breakdown even exists. So if this is not the first time you've heard my voice, there's a chance you've heard me on air. I am the local host of All Things Considered on 89.1 WBOI in Fort Wayne. The studio we are recording this in is a quite familiar surrounding. I've found a way to get a few pop culture pieces on air with cool local connections, but right around the time Batman was celebrating his 80th birthday, I decided I wanted to have an avenue to dive into pop culture topics more regularly. So began a conversation with Caleb and the idea to start a podcast. We weren't exactly sure what mold this would take, but we did know that we didn't want to get pigeonholed by what is current or popular. In short, we reserve the right to look back into any era, any topic and any pop culture piece worthy of a deep dive. Looking back at Avengers Endgame, Rocket Man, the final season of Game of Thrones, and other production events from 2019, a lot of content creators talked about these films and shows. A lot of them, frankly, are clickbaity as hell. Top 10 things we love about Stranger Things. 20 things you missed in... Why X, Y, and Z sucks. You get the idea. You also have long-form YouTube video essayists who dive into content we enjoy all the time, but we thought it would be cool to explore our topics as more of a dialogue and in audio only. I've always liked radio. The pictures are better. I can't take credit for that one. I heard it from Robert Siegel, and I can't remember who he was referencing when he said it. But we were also inspired by the conversational back and forths you get in videos from SB Nation, though we will not be dealing with sports. The format of one host guiding another through a topic is a great way for all of us to learn something new. So as far as storytelling breakdown goes, we really are defining it by what it is not. It's not going to be a current clickbaity top 10 list of whatever the newest releases are. It's not going to be a debate. Ben and I have a lot of overlapping tastes, but as we explore as much pop culture as we can, we'll both be going into territories we aren't as familiar with or match up with 100% of our usual tastes. We disagree with each other plenty, but we'll keep that primarily confined to when the mics are off. And I suspect for today's topic, we're staying well within both of our comfort zones. Batman turned 80 years old in 2019. The Joker turns 80 today. His first appearance in the previously mentioned Batman number one was on April 25th, 1940. So it sounds like the Joker arrives pretty fully formed. Batman number one gives us so much about the character as we know him short of an origin story, which, recalling another comic book, the Joker would prefer to keep his origins multiple choice. And there's so much in there that gets pulled from the comics into other mediums for decades to come. There's even a scene where Joker does a convincing enough job disguising himself as a policeman, that no one notices him until it's too late. The Dark Knight borrowed that for the salute at Commissioner Loeb's funeral that turns on the mayor. You also have the classic jester-faced Joker card, which is shown right away in that first appearance cover splash art, being pulled from and used in the Nolan trilogy. But there's a reason we started with the section of Batman number one that we did. The reference to the Panic broadcast, you hear the Joker before you see him in the story, if you ignore the cover. And from the beginning, the Joker is presenting himself to the largest audience possible. This is part of his M.O. with almost every portrayal that's been done since. He's perhaps the most recognizable on-screen villain in the history of film, except for maybe Darth Vader. And when we see him on screen, he is often on a screen. He does it in Batman 89... He does it in The Dark Knight. He doesn't do it in Suicide Squad. Yes, that movie has lots of problems, but maybe that would have been something that would have helped the Joker's overall presentation. Have him address a crowd. Funny that you mentioned Darth Vader, because we want to focus now on four different Joker performances, and I know where I want to start. Because this guy 
owned my childhood, both as the Joker and as Luke Skywalker. Mark Hamill. His interpretation of the character continues to stand the test of time, considering he's been the Joker longer than we've been alive. So, obviously in talking about Mark Hamill's portrayal of the Joker, we are talking about a voice. His voice acting portrayal of the character is just absolutely spectacular. And for that, he gets a couple of advantages. The first being that if you are reading a Joker appearance in a comic book, he's more than likely the voice you are hearing in your head as you are reading. Yeah. It is the most accurate Joker portrayal because he gets matched up to animation, whether that is something like the Timverse from the Batman animated series back in the 90s up to more recently the Arkham games. Yeah, and he's pretty much the exact same character from the animated series into the Arkham games. I mean, it's told in a more mature format. Like, the Arkham games are a bit darker, but it still is pretty much the exact same character. Just, you know, he has the opportunity to do a bit more dastardly things. And credit where credit is due. Paul Dini was the co-writer on Arkham Asylum. So as Joker is haunting the world surrounding you and he works the crowd, leading an army of goons, and every aspect of that still feels very similar to some of Dini's writing that we got in Batman the Unmade series and all of his encounters with the other villains and what he thinks of them. It's always in such a believable way, whether he's talking about Bane as a puppet and saying, let's cut his strings. And you then you think back to some of the greatest Batman the Unmade series episodes like Almost Got Him, where he's around a table playing poker with the other villains and he's cheating and listening to their stories, knowing he's going to top them all. The confidence and the level of sinister undertones that Mark Hamill brought to it. I think even in Mark Hamill's portrayal, you can still refer to them as undertones. Granted, partially because it's originating a children's cartoon, he's not overtly scary, but you can always hear those sinister notes just underneath the surface. But I think that limitation of putting him in a children's cartoon to begin with like helped shape his take on the character. It's an animated show, and ironically, his voice for it is so animated. You can hear that voice, and even if you're not watching on screen his movements, you can see in your mind exactly, oh, how that character would walk based on how he talks. And if you watch behind-the-scenes footage and other elements uh, that go along with the M8 series or the Arkham games, Hamill is usually the only actor, at least in the way they would record the M8 series, they would get ensemble cast, everybody's there in the room together, and it's chair, 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 Mark Hamill is standing. And you have to, to bring that voice and that energy to that character in the way that he does. It is just a full-throated, fully-embodied performance. And there's a reason that as... Because again, lauding over... The performances that Mark Hamill has given us throughout his career, bringing the trickster to life in live action. He is a wonderful actor in general, which then leads to him being a wonderful voice actor. I mean, like you said earlier about the the undertones in his performance as the Joker, his performance as Fire Lord Ozai in the Avatar series, I think, is basically the fruition of that. Because that's a character that is, it, his sinisterness is in overtones. There's no subtlety in that. And even in other turns as simple as Undergrowth or even Solomon Grundy, Hamill's got a range. It's just so wonderful to hear all the different characters he's able to bring to life. Going back to his portrayal of the Joker and looking at some of the episodes of Batman the M.A.D. series, which also, again, does a wonderful job of plucking stories from the comics, they did The Laughing Fish. 
And after a bunch of fish are hauled in on the Gotham docks, and they all are white with green fins and scales and have the sinister Joker smile on them, he is then holding the city ransom and threatening people of influence and doing so via the television. He is appearing in media and does so usually with some form of a countdown, though for that, now I want to shift focus to Justice League, because Hamill continues to portray the Joker throughout the entire Timverse run. There's an episode called Wild Cards, where the Joker is threatening Vegas, of all places, uh, and it's him bringing in the Royal Flush Gang, and he's planted bombs all over the place. There's a great moment where Harley is monitoring everything from a news chopper, essentially, just filming as people are panicking, and says something to the effect of, they're all so scared, they're even willing to go to Los Angeles! <laughs> <laughs> and it's has a ticking down timer throughout the entire episode at the beginning the joker just gives the audience one and it's the length of the episode so when that happens joker just looks at the camera and just goes what were you expecting from me a round number and that clock ticks on throughout the entire episode he is working the crowd and then pulls everybody in because it is in that episode where we first meet ace she's the only one not going out in the field and directly fighting the justice league and that's because her powers are based off of her mind and as soon as she's put on screen, everyone just gets enthralled and they are all being driven insane by her powers and abilities. She is Joker's ace in the hole. That episode, more so even than maybe some of the ones in the original Batman the Animated Series, is maybe the best example of Mark Hamill's Joker working a crowd and speaking to an audience as we often see him. What's interesting, so you brought up Harley in that episode and it made me think about the fact that the Joker shapes how the comic world revolves based on how he's interpreted. So Harley was created for the animated series by Paul Dini as the Joker's girlfriend. And so she has that same zany attitude, that same high energy octane levels. And then this is skipping ahead a bit, but later when Ledger brings his take to the Joker and that super dark, super intense take, the entire DC universe shifts around that. And it's like, Oh, that's what the Joker's doing. Well, we got to follow that too. Although, even Ledger's Joker has no Harley Quinn. When he was originally being developed, one of the first things I remember we heard trickling out of Warner Brothers was Ledger's portrayal is a homicidal clown with zero empathy. Mm -hmm. There's no getting close to that. Yeah. And now that we have, through the bridge that is Harley Quinn, gone from one portrayal to another, I think it is now time that we address the best on-screen titan of a portrayal of the Clown Prince of Crime. And that is, of course, Heath Ledger's portrayal as the Joker in The Dark Knight. It's iconic, not just for comic book fans, but in the film industry. Like, it is an insane role, the amount of work that he went through to get to the levels that he got to. Well, this is going into a level, I think, is a good way to kind of think of that. Because in my most recent rewatch of The Dark Knight, it was amazing to what extent it kind of felt like the Joker had been lurking in some parallel universe. Ledger went there, brought some of that back for the film, and ultimately did not survive the trip. And that portrayal is, of course, the agent of chaos and all of the elements that he leans into. And the fact that there's just enough clues there that as far as the multiple choice origin story goes, you kind of have to go, he's a war vet. Mm -hmm. when he has the line of or a truckload of soldiers gets blown up nobody panics and is completely experienced with guns knives explosives everything he brings to the table 
it makes sense he has that background of a soldier who is not coping well with what he's experienced. Right, and he's a take on the character that could only exist in a post-9-11 world. I mean, before that we had the clown prince of crime, Hamill, and then the mobster with Nicholson, but Ledger is a terrorist. He fully embodies terror every time you see him. And I've heard his compared to a number of villains, again, Vader, mainly just because of lack of screen time, how much power and authority he has over that entire movie, just that menace lurking there. You feel the Joker, even in scenes that he just is not in. You also have a comparison that could be made to Jaws in that we have scenes where he goes in, he kills, he leaves. He goes in, he kills, he leaves. Whether that is a clown goon and a bank manager or Gamble's right-hand man who has the magic trick with the pencils shoved through his eye. There's just so many amazing moments where he just comes in, kills, leaves, before we start to get more interaction with him after he gets captured. And then from there, Ledger's just untouchable. We really see Ledger working a room in a couple of ways. Uh, the first is the party in the penthouse apartment where he comes in. I'm not going to count the mob boss interaction because that's almost more of a sales pitch yeah. <laughs> than it is just him working a crowd and just coming in and terrifying the hell out of everybody. There's gunplay, the sticking the knife and Senator Patrick Leahy's face telling him how much he hated his father. Continuing up until we have that very just personal, terrifying encounter where he has with Rachel where he is just circling her. And the camera is following all the way up to a little fight. And yeah, I like that. And you're going to love me. And then we're in an action scene. That moment where he is just working the room. And again, you are just watching and waiting because he has been killing in every scene he's been in up until that point. And then you have the other moment where he's interacting with a crowd via a screen. And it's the found footage. And it is the Batman that gets slammed against the glass of the mayor's office. And we find out how he died and when, as well as Joker feeding lines to Matt Engel for Gotham tonight after he's been captured as one of the many hostages uh, on the bus that was unaccounted for. And those sequences, like the actual camera footage from those parts of the movie, uh, were directed by Ledger. Nolan just handed it off and said, you do this, shoot the footage, and we'll put it in. I'm sure it was more complicated than that. And Nolan <laughs> is a classy, classy man. I'm sure it was still planned out, but it is one of those things where, again, Ledger took the reins of the character. And as we get that little lens where, okay, this is what the Joker wants to show the world and how he is presenting himself to an audience, it is just terrifying. Yeah, and that's what he wants to show the world. But I think The Dark Knight does a good job of we never are put inside the Joker's head because that's almost too dark of a place for the audience to go. We observe him, but we never see the world through his eyes. Continuing on to another Joker, while we never see things through his eyes, he is arguably the protagonist of the movie, Nicholson. Well, and you hear that, I can't remember if it was from Dini or some of the other creators of the animated series, but talking about how, in so many ways, it almost feels like the Batman villains are the protagonists trying to do something, and Batman is the antagonist who stops them. Mm -hmm. And the best example of that may well be, yes, Batman 89 and Nicholson's portrayal of the character. Because Batman 89, I mean, we get flashback that shows the death of Bruce's parents. The beginning of the movie, you even have a couple getting mugged at first, and you think, oh, they're, yeah, they're starting with the origin story, but no, it's... A random couple, and they steal things, and then Batman stops them, and it's his iconic first appearance in that movie. But Keaton is second build, behind Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and you have 
the central focus of the story in a lot of ways is his transformation, him coming up through the mob, working for Boss Grissom, who, funny story, was originally, I think, in earlier drafts of the script, going to be Rupert Thorne. Again, huh. another animated series and comics connection. Ultimately, they decided to just create their own character. Also pretty sure, salary-wise, Nicholson was paid way more to come in and bring the Joker to life for the first time on the silver screen. Quick pause. I have to tell this story while we're here, just because it is a story of Keaton and Nicholson. Because Joker makeup is and will remain heavily involved to transform any actor into that character to bring him to life on screen. And so you show up early. You're in the makeup trailer uh, before a day of production. And apparently Keaton and Nicholson, I believe, are both big Los Angeles Lakers fans. So go in. The first interaction would usually be, you catch that Lakers game last night, Keats? And go from there. Filming continued on, and eventually the Lakers season ended. And Keaton's sitting in the trailer. I'm pretty sure he was the one who told the story. He had no idea what Jack was going to try to talk to him about once he got in. Goes in, sits down. It's maybe a moment. And then he just goes, you see that dart tournament last night, Keats? <laughs> just <laughs> amazing to what extent, in terms of Hollywood business as usual, Batman 89 kind of encapsulates that. This was way before we get into some of the method acting portrayals that we saw later. We've already talked about Ledger. We will talk about Phoenix, but for the moment, let's stay on Nicholson. His portrayal feels like a mobster. He takes over Grissom's organization, kills him, and becomes the kingpin. You have just to what extent they tie the Joker into the story by having him be the one who kills Bruce's parents in Batman 89. There's so many ways in which that movie is the story of the Joker. Batman is the one that makes him fall into the chemicals, but we see the Joker and his men going there, and then Batman just shows up. As far as working a crowd is concerned, once again, he's on television. He's selling products, and they're laced with chemicals, and we have reporters dying on air, and the Joker interrupting broadcasts. And I think it would also be fair to say, in terms of live-action portrayals of villains, this sets the standard for Batman villains just laughing their way to the bank. Nicholson does it, and then later we see Tommy Lee Jones basically doing the same thing as Two-Face. I think what's interesting, he's a mobster, and almost in the same way that Al Capone is, he's like a celebrity as well as a mobster. I mean, he throws the parade down Main Street, and he's a big showman. He's got the flashy suit, which becomes iconic. He's got the big hat, the big gun, the very big gun. <laughs> and where does he get those wonderful toys? Oh, my word. So while Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker is more lighthearted than some of the later ones that would come, even he has said that it's a dark place to go to for any actor. And he didn't do any of the method acting like we touched on before, but later actors would, like Phoenix, who took the Joker to a very dark place. And at this point, uh, we are recording this in March of 2020. We can say it's official. The only two characters in cinema that have netted two actors Oscars in two separate films are Vito Corleone for Robert De Niro's performance in The Godfather Part Two, and of course Marlon Brando's in the first Godfather film, and The Joker for Heath Ledger's posthumous Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in The Dark Knight, and Best Actor for Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. And again, we see elements being pulled from the comics, and as soon as trailers for Joker were starting to drop, and we saw what looked very much like a talk show audience, everybody was just going... They're doing Dark Knight Returns. Mm -hmm. They are going to pull the Joker killing perhaps the entire audience 
to screen and, and use that terrible moment as one of the defining moments in the film for Joker. It just wound up being heavily interpreted and still quite effective given how well Phoenix does in that scene. I mean, it is his debut. It is him, his coming out story as the Joker. I am here introducing himself to the world and killing the host. I know as a movie, you and I both have problems with Joker. And one of the fundamental ones I had, especially when you want to see your character having some onus on them and taking some initiative, if you have a story where everyone in their universe is just a terrible person, it makes it so your main character arguably didn't have a choice about where they ended up. Yeah, especially when the character to begin with already has a mental illness that only exacerbates things. One of my favorite Joker themes of all time is the one bad day aspect. That one bad day can turn anyone into a villain, into a psychopath. The problem is that every day is a bad day, not just one day is a bad day. A journey without hope leaves a story devoid of any tension. When you have no choice to be good because every single day is bad, it's not exciting because it's just a progression from point A to point B. He was going to become the Joker and there was never an option for him not to take that path. And in a lot of ways, it lets the narrative make excuses for the protagonist without also challenging the protagonist. There's not choices being offered. There's not decisions being made. And to look at that as, oh, this is the Joker story. I mean, DC's whole black label thing, like it's it's separate from their main universe, but it still in some ways could be viewed as, oh, this is the definitive Joker origin story. And that is not the way the character is even supposed to work. The irony is it's like we've seen a little bit of everything now in terms of Joker portrayal. We've seen once I had a wife and all of the multiple choice elements that Ledger brought to it, which was part of why that portrayal felt as right as it did in terms of its relationship to the comics or tying it in with Batman's origin story and having him be a gangster. That fits as well the only element that really is off screen at this point ironically is the red hood origin story the oldest one introduced from the comics that that of course then gets reinterpreted by alan moore for the killing joke and you could argue if there is a definitive joker origin story it's that one Mm -hmm. and even alan moore himself has said in a quote that he put far too much melodramatic weight upon a character that was never designed to carry it in specific regards to the killing joke. He himself said that you can take this character too far. You can make it too dark when it was not originally intended to be that way. And I hate to make this comparison, but when I left Joker, it was one of the first things that came to mind. And that's Sandman and Spider-Man 3. If you have to tie in your villain to your hero's origin story to make it compelling, you're really taking a lazy way out. And there's so many ways to make the Joker so much more compelling as he relates to Batman, even in a film that doesn't have Batman. There's still so many other avenues available. And as far as on-screen portrayals of the Joker go, we're batting 500 at this point as to whether or not he's intertwined with Batman's origin story. And the biggest irony for me in that final sequence where a pair of clown goons kill Thomas and Martha Wayne and Joker is on top of a police car surrounded by a group of people who are praising him and it's kind of this exultant moment of triumph for the joker after he's just been bloodied and beaten and just looks terrible compared to the pristine clown makeup he was wearing when he went on the talk show in the first place it's also where he looks the most like ledger's portrayal in that moment it does just kind of encapsulate again there is a universe somewhere where the joker exists and ledger did a better job than anybody of going there getting the essence of that character and bringing it back. Even the Phoenix portrayal nods to the Ledger one at the moment of greatest triumph. Now, given I did also grow up, thanks to family, with 
the Adam West portrayal of Batman in my life. And then as a result of that, the Cesar Romero portrayal of the Joker, the Romero Joker does hold a special place in my heart. And the Jared Leto portrayal also holds a bad taste in my mouth. Because neither of those portrayals really meets the qualifier of speaking to a crowd, working an audience, and being on screen and appearing in media as we were looking at the Joker, that's really where we're going to end our qualifiers. And the whole point of what we were trying to do was not rank anybody or any portrayal, though as we were discussing it, we decided, okay, these are the four we're going with. We're going to talk about Hamill. We're going to talk about Ledger. We're going to talk about Nicholson. We're going to talk about Phoenix. And it's kind of tier one, tier two. Hamill and Ledger are in a class all their own until someone else proves they belong there. And Nicholson's and Phoenix's portrayals both have seats at the table. Yeah. And I mean, all of the ones that we talked about relate to the time that they're in and also kind of shape the time that they're in. I mean, the pendulum swings from The Laughing Man to Camp to the 70s and 80s reboots to animation to terrorist. The Joker performances that resonated the most came with the swings back to the dark, a reflection of modern issues, terrorism. And then the sort of rebelling against the man of the 80s that Phoenix embodied. And you have these moments, again, you just referenced the laughing man. From the beginning, the Joker was designed to be the stuff of nightmares. The laughing man, look it up. It is a vision of a character from a silent movie with dark hair, a pale white face, and just this sickening grin that clearly was the inspiration for the Joker. And we do, yeah, the darkest moments. We get Batman 89 Right after, in 1988, we had Barbara Gordon crippled in The Killing Joke, and we had Jason Todd beaten with a crowbar and killed in an explosion in A Death in the Family. Some of the darkest Joker stories in his history happen right before he hits the screen. And in so many ways, I mean, the character has gone places where the creators never envisioned. But from that starting point, it's clear that that darkness was always going to be there, it's just a matter of how it gets brought forward, whether it is this menace that you feel throughout an entire portrayal like Ledger's or the sinister notes lingering beneath the surface in Hamill's portrayal. And I think hearkening back to that quote by Alan Moore, there's a way to be dark without being joyless and you can be sinister without being too disturbing. So where's the line? The result of having so many portrayals that have pushed the envelope that have resonated for decades or in Hamill's case, continued for decades as well They've put the Joker in his own zip code, in his own world. He occupies a territory all his own that I don't think any other villain may be in except for maybe Hannibal Lecter and Darth Vader that carry as much weight. And I say this as a Star Wars fan. Lecter's is third, Vader's second. The Joker has to be number one. On some level, we only see the Joker as a picture on a page or screen. But a few actors have brought him to life with performances that have endured along with the character. The character, however is so big. His personality spans really every form of media, from comics, from television shows, from movies, that you really just can't contain him in one medium. He's too big. He's the Joker. And whether that takes the form of Mark Hamill's voice or Ledger's iconic portrayal that we've now had two other actors try to take a bite at the apple, Ledger's will go down as the best of all time until someone proves otherwise. And Nicholson, Romero, Phoenix, they all have a seat at the table. Less so Jared Leto. But they all hold pieces of the character. Mm-hmm. They've all gotten up close. You can't play the character in all of his sinister glory without him getting a piece of you, too. Uh, Ledger makes that more obvious than anyone. Nicholson struggles as well. And the intense method acting that Phoenix did and Leto attempted, that's how that's going to work. An encounter with the Joker 
makes us wonder just how far away from madness that we all are. Just ask Harley Quinn. It just takes one bad day. We hope you have enjoyed Storytelling Breakdown. It feels awesome to say that title. Figuring out what to call this podcast took us a little longer than we expected. As both people whose lives are kind of defined by stories and telling stories, we are obviously very passionate about storytelling. So much of what we enjoy involves that. Sure, that's kind of obvious if we're talking about film, television, or audio storytelling, but it goes beyond that. Animators, game designers, illustrators, inkers, modelers, there's so many people who tell their stories through different mediums that we'll explore on this podcast. We don't want to give away everything now, but our next episode will focus on the CGI artist, performance capture technology, and an actor who brought to life a very special ape. Caesar. This brings us to the end segment of the show, a segment we are calling Storytelling Spotlight. This is a chance for us to highlight an episode of a show, a scene in a movie, or a video game. Basically anything we think does an effective or unique job of storytelling, but something we couldn't do a whole episode on, or at least haven't yet. And I think a fantastic opener for this segment would be the tactical role-playing video game series, The Banner Saga Trilogy. Do you like Vikings? Do you like games where your choices have meaningful and immediate impact? Do you like 12-foot-tall horn giants wrecking shop on the battlefield? Then you'll like The Banner Saga. The Banner Saga is made by Stoic Studios, an indie development company founded by three ex-Bioware staff. For those of you who don't know, Bioware is the company that made the hugely popular and successful Mass Effect and Dragon Age video game series. And just like those games, The Banner Saga is a story-driven game where your choices matter and make a massive impact on your gameplay and how your story will play out. Set in a fictional Viking and Norse mythology-inspired fantasy world, the Banner Saga sets you as the leader of a caravan trying to lead your people to safety away from a seemingly unstoppable cataclysm. You have humans, and also horned giants known as Varl as your allies and companions, while you face stone-armored warriors called Dredge as your enemies. The gameplay is divided into two sections. Combat, which is tactical turn-based combat similar to Final Fantasy Tactics or the Fire Emblem games and story decisions slash resource management where the player makes decisions for the caravan or in dialogue with characters that impact the story or what happens to your caravan. For example, you might run across some people who wish to join your caravan. You could choose to let them join you to save more people and have more fighters for eventual fights, but they might be bandits who could steal your supplies and make off with them. Supplies are important as they keep your people alive and fed until you can reach the next town or settlement. Once you run out of supplies, people start starving to death. The game boasts over 45 unique playable heroes who to form your party with, each of which have their own stats that can be leveled and their own unique special moves which give them an edge in combat. All of them have their own backstory, development, and a possibility of dying depending on your actions throughout the games. Replayability is a must with this series as the choices you make will cause huge shifts in what happens in the story. Without a doubt, the two biggest standouts from the Banner Saga are the art direction and the music. The hand-drawn animation is reminiscent of Don Bluth or Ralph Bashke, and it is absolutely gorgeous. While the games sparsely use fully animated cutscenes, only using them for important story moments, every movement in combat is fluidly and beautifully animated, making the combat not only a joy to play through, but also enthralling to watch. You can watch one of your giant horned Varl allies bring a massive war axe down upon an enemy, or your sorcerer pull lightning down from the sky to ripple through the enemy lines. This makes the combat feel more real and personal. Whenever one of your heroes falls in battle, you see the animation of them crumpling to the ground with real weight, giving the battle even more tension as you try to finish it with the few fighters you have left standing. The landscapes that sweep by as you travel with your caravan across the world are also stunning, 
putting into perspective just how small you are in this vast world. But you also get to see your caravan grow and stretch as you recruit more people to your cause, or shrink if your actions result in the loss of life. The music complements everything about the games perfectly. Austin Wintry composed the score for all three games, and it is some of the most haunting and beautiful music you will find in a video game, or really in any medium period. He manages to capture the epic scope of a fantasy story set on the backdrop of the world ending, while also maintaining that emotional connection to the individual and small lives that matter. There are large sweeping orchestral sections for epic battles taking place on a bridge while you're desperately holding off lines of enemy soldiers, and softer, more quiet songs for the moments where you're just talking to one of your companions around the camp. The Banner Saga is available on all systems, including a just-released port for the Switch. If you're a fan at all of meaningful storytelling, immersive atmosphere, or just plain old good games, I highly recommend you don't miss out on the Banner Saga. Skull. Hi there. This is Ben from a couple months after this episode was recorded. I was trying to figure out where to put this, and I decided I wanted the podcast, as it was originally recorded and plotted out, to play before I cut into things. First, you just heard our format, as we will try to match it, in almost every episode. We'll do a deep dive into something from pop culture and storytelling for the majority of the show, then we'll have a shorter second half to dive into something else that we just want to share more about. We'll try to be more analytical in the first halves, and be fanboys in the second halves, but as you just heard, there's plenty of overlap between the two. Both segments will also regularly feature guests when possible. I say when possible because we began production on Storytelling Breakdown before the COVID-19 pandemic. Early March now feels like almost a decade ago. While the majority of our conversations track prior to the pandemic aren't impacted by changes that have come since, there are some obvious changes. We intended to drop this episode on April 25th of this year, for the Joker's 80th birthday. We missed that deadline, and that's okay. This season has been a joy to work on, and a source of sanity in insane times. Thank you for going sane with us. Now back to past Ben and Caleb to tell you who made this podcast possible. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer and producer. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>